I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking It, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we are breaking down building community and checking in with our first three-time guest, uh, filmmaker Micah Khan, about his recent debut feature experience and what's coming up next. Before we dive in, remember that we release bonus content for every single episode of this podcast over on patreon.com slash breaking out pod so definitely check that out if you want to support us and get yourself even more information and resources so um i think we originally had this idea for this episode because both of us moved fairly recently uh, mm-hmm. moved away from our original sort of filmmaking hub of new york city and we have both faced unique challenges related to rebuilding a filmmaking community, especially during a pandemic, especially during a time where neither of us are filmmaking. Yeah. So uh, what what's going on in upstate? What what can you tell us about moving away? Because you're, you're, you didn't just move away from your original hub. You moved away from like a major city and a major filmmaking place. So I imagine that's challenging. Yeah, definitely challenging. But also I did move away from a filmmaking hub and a city but I moved to a town that is very well established in the sort of broader arts community. And the reason for that is because there was the oldest artist colony in the U.S. was here till basically the Great Depression and then it turned into a foundation for the arts. And so that was a big reason why I was interested in the town, just for vibes really (laughs) more than anything. but that has been good. That's been good for me because they the foundation offers workshops. And so one of my big strategies for the new year was to try and get in with them on the teaching level to offer some film workshops to locals and maybe see what else I could do beyond that if it takes off. And uh, just as of this week, I, I got a workshop approved. And that worked really through my neighbor, I would say, because like it kind of goes back to Micah's episode where we were talking about networking in general and networking mm-hmm. laterally. Um, and so instead of like trying to go directly to the foundation and impress them with my credits as this newcomer from the city, I just naturally bonded with my neighbor, who is a painter, and she does wonderful work. And she introduced me to someone else at at the uh, foundation who then gave me a direct contact to the person who does programming and then it all just kind of took off and they're excited to try this new they have a whole bunch of workshops in different mediums but they haven't done anything film specific so they're excited about that and I'm of course excited to get back to teaching and and being creative and inspiring people who maybe never thought about trying filmmaking. That's awesome. Uh, Can you tell us what the class is about? A lot of the full-time people who live here are retirees. And then there are a lot of like vacation home type people. And so I'm definitely gonna be targeting the retirees who like to take these workshops in general. Like I mentioned at the beginning of the year that I took a ceramics class and it wasn't really my thing. And, and that this is the same organization that does that. And then also students. So there are like colleges nearby that don't necessarily have film programs. Um, and so it'll be a lot of like newbies on either side, either people who are just trying to figure out like, can they make a career in film? What is filmmaking? And then more like hobbyists, people who have time on their hands, who maybe want to learn a new skill or just learn about storytelling in that medium. And so the workshop will be very focused on like, what is short form filmmaking? What is a short film? And how do you frame and 
and express yourself through moving images and and so it'll be a kind of like film 101 with some hands-on grouping of people by the end they'll have some sort of short film <laughs> you know um, I'm not gonna touch editing so I think I'll go like really old school and have them shoot in order while explaining mm -hmm. to them what editing is but like basically have them shoot a sequence and and then maybe play with music and stuff with them but that's kind of the basics of it it'll be a six week thing and then if there's interest maybe then they'll be level two and level three and I think also for the artists here who work in other mediums who are more career oriented I might then talk about doing some of the stuff that we do and talk about that are more like building an audience and raising sure. funds and all of that but for now it'll be very craft early craft focused that's cool that's funny because I'm also teaching early craft stuff for that CBS pipeline challenge thing that I work for and that's starting up soon. Um, and that's definitely a way to meet people, certainly. Actually, I was teaching a workshop yesterday and uh, I was talking about how we met because somebody in the audience asked, like, for those of us who are kind of socially awkward, how when you go to an event, do you like get somebody's email? Because I was talking about like building email lists and I was like, I mean, you, I can just give you the line and the line is, do you have a card? I was like, just trade business cards. I was like, have a business card and just ask somebody if you're in a conversation with them, especially, but even if you're not, um, and you've like seen them speak or something, just be like, Hey, that was great. Can I have your card? Easiest thing in the world. And then I told the story of us meeting and how that was, that was it. Uh, you taught a class. Uh, we exchanged <laughs> yeah. cards. Um, I stalked you for years and now we're best friends. And That's like, right. but like, yeah, it's, 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 I think people are still so caught up in like, you have to network with like a very specific thing in mind. And I, and I like that you called out that you just got to know your neighbor. Yeah. You I mean, and move to a place that vibed with you and you talk to people who are interesting to you and lo and behold, cool opportunities came from it. Right. And I think, you know, honestly, it was more on her than it was on me because I'm the like awkward one who doesn't know how to be a neighbor outside of New York City where you basically ignore each other. And mm -hmm. so, you know, she's a she's an older woman um, who moved from the city as well, but like 15 years ago. And Got so it. she she kind of knows what we're going through in that adjustment. And she was really lovely. She came over and brought us a plant. And I think like she's a woman. She's she's from the Dominican Republic. She's one of the few women of color I've met in my small upstate town. Um, and so I think there was on her part an interest in me. She recognized another woman of color and on her block, you know, no less. And, um, and I was excited to meet her as well, just for that same reason. But yeah, I then made a point to sort of build a relationship because she brought it over and I could have left it at like, oh, I met a neighbor and that was that. But then I started texting her, um, back and forth about things, particularly her cat who likes to come around our hmm. house and try and... Uh, oh, she's the owner of the... She is the owner the, of the The peeping cat. tom cat. The peeping tom cat, yes. Um, so, so that was a way that we bonded as well. And then it evolved into a friendship where now we take walks together and and uh, it's very it's very wholesome and, and small town cute. <laughs> I think you're touching on something that is something that I have been struggling with, which is like the maintenance of meeting people. Because like, it's one thing to give advice about like research events in your area, attend events, attend mm -hmm. meetups, host your own. But like keeping in touch with people is so hard. Yeah. <laughs> like in LA, it takes about two months to set up one coffee meeting. And then 
if you hear from that person in the next calendar year, it is a miracle of epic proportions. Like <laughs> when I first moved out here, a lot of our, our booby former guests um, who I hadn't met, but who, who you knew were based in LA. And I, I reached out to a bunch of them to actually like meet up in person. And I've only seen like two of them, like Kim Garland and I spent months trying to connect for coffee and we just never did it's been over a year of me and kim garland every couple of months being like oh we should get coffee and then completely failing to do so i allegedly have a coffee (laughs) date with um liz manishill tomorrow uh who was from our freelancing episode nice and uh that's only because she literally just moved like a couple of miles away from me and it is the perfect time between her moving and her having a second baby and making a new feature. <laughs> it, was, it just happened to work out that she moved nearby me and I was, and we were emailing and I was like, I know you're free. Let's go get coffee. It's crazy. I don't even know if I've met Liz in person ever. Liz mm. has been on two of my podcasts from two different eras of my life. I have known her for ages, and I don't actually know if I've ever met her in person. And we have been living in the same like city for almost two years. Mm-hmm. Why is this so hard? Like yeah. I feel like it's definitely harder in LA in some ways to meet people than in New York, because in New York, everyone's like transportation is very equalized. Right, but yeah. Uh, the distance in LA is so much greater and the pain of parking and the pain of like what time of day is traffic going to be terrible and like all of these different aspects make the you know I think it's so hard it's also easier to go out like late night for drinks because you can take the train home instead of having to drive yep yep yeah, because you, you don't have to worry about over-imbibing. You don't have to worry about traffic. Like, it's you you just go out. And, like, that's definitely something that I didn't exp- – I didn't really think about missing because, like, I – my early adulthood was in New York, so I never really experienced a early adulthood where drinking and, like, going out after 8 p.m. was a part of my regular social life until I had regular access to public transit. So mm-hmm. it has been interesting to come to a new community at – one that I'm familiar with because I grew up in car culture, but relearning what the difference is with car culture and being an adult is, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that's definitely been an adjustment. Like I'm going out tonight with some coworkers, but like they want to meet at like 8 p.m. And I was like, I'm 31. It's 8 p.m. <laughs> is my prime reading time, you guys. Why are you doing this to me? Yeah. If each of our examples tell you anything, it's that you have to adapt to where you are and what makes sense for, for building community there. And the strategies that have worked in the past may not work now, especially post-COVID. I would say a lot of the strategies that that worked in the past just generally don't work but yeah like for me i'm still finding my footing because i'm so used to city living where you see people so regularly in public transportation people in your neighborhood or just going out to so many events there are so many things to go to here that's not the case and so i have to be really strategic and really proactive about looking for things to attend and 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 meet people at. and i think in terms of advice for keeping in touch with people is just showing up you know, yeah. being genuinely interested and just showing up. Like when people invite me to things, especially if it's things for them, like I try to be there. I try to be there as often as I can. Um, you know, that's already such a gift that somebody has invited you and you don't have to organize anything. So just show up mm-hmm. for people. 
go to the go to their screenings go to their film festivals like as much as you can show up uh and just your presence maintains the relationship even if you don't have anything active to talk about which has definitely been my struggle it's just like i have nothing new to say to anybody i'm not working on anything immediately relevant to anyone like is this Mm -hmm. even worth it but it's like i don't know i like surrounding myself with interesting people so i'm gonna keep showing up and then Maybe it'll go somewhere or maybe I'll just continue to know interesting people. It's a win-win. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is a terrible uh, segue, but a necessary one to drama alert. It's time for the drama alert segment. There was new screenwriting Twitter drama. Oh, yes. There's one... (laughs) There's one real screenwriting Twitter drama and then one, I wouldn't say fake screenwriting Twitter drama, but more just like everyone collectively was upset. Yeah, discourse. There was screenwriting (laughs) discourse and screenwriting drama this month. Um, So on March 2nd, uh, at ZuckerZack tweeted, many talented screenwriters fail for one of two reasons. One, lack of an understanding of what the marketplace wants. Two, belief that they're the exception to the rule. Parentheses, X rarely sells, but my version of X will be so good they'll make mine. Uh, And then there's like two more tweets in this thread. But like that was the original tweet was just about like Mm -hmm. why talented screenwriters fail um and would you believe it but uh everyone had a lot of feelings about this um the main sort of other side of this drama was from an account at, at jeffrey howard 33 um where he says just read thread of the worst business advice please don't follow trends please write your passion passion sells chasing trends largely a dead end those decisions you're chasing are two years old time moved on ouch so like as with most screenwriting twitter drama there are we have been presented with two ways to succeed one follow the trends the other follow the passion and anyone who agreed with either of them split down the middle and screamed at the other side um (laughs) and i mean as with most screenwriting twitter drama i feel like the actual yeah. answer lies somewhere in between. Right. Totally. Yeah. But Twitter hates nuance, especially Elon Musk's Twitter. That's right. And I think actually a lot of what Micah goes on to talk about in this episode is that balance between the two. Mm-hmm. So, and that like, that's kind of what you have to be aware of the market. If you're, yeah. if your goal is to make a living doing this, yeah. but also people who, who are inauthentic to who they are and what they care about, that's always going to fail in any capacity yeah it's like you can pay attention to trends without being cynical about what you do to apply to those Mm -hmm. and I think that's often like the missing piece is that yeah of course when you treat it like strictly like a business and not like an art form that's not going to work but if you just treat it like an art form and pretend like you're above the business that also doesn't work Mm mm-hmm yeah. Uh, and so then in terms of the screenwriting uh, discourse from this week, this week when we are recording this episode was also the week that the Armchair Expert episode with Jenna Ortega went live where she like brags about how she would frequently change her character's lines on the show Wednesday without like talking to the writers and was I think she has some quote that's like she was like straight up disrespectful about it because she didn't like the direction that some of the scripts took and so she decided to just change them on the day but when nobody could tell her anything and screenwriting twitter of course got um pretty upset which makes sense mm-hmm. um I'm inclined to give her the benefit of the doubt to a certain extent because she's pretty young, uh, because she was on Armchair Expert, and I find that Dax Shepard is good at needling people into saying Mm -hmm. crazy shit. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But also, like, 
you know, uh, Karina Aldi McKenzie had some good tweets about this specifically related to like, hey, maybe don't shit talk your colleagues in public forums as if it's a good thing. Um, Yeah. And also there were threads about like people making the point that you know that writing a script isn't like one person writes it and then it gets on television, right? There's Mm -hmm. like 20 people who write a script and have to give permission for it. So like, it's a little bit reductive to say like, oh, I didn't like the direction the writers were taking. It's like, probably the writers didn't like it either. Or there's a reason why they had to do it this way. Right. I think, I think that her tone was, was dismissive and not great, but I think it was coming from a place I don't think she meant to be harmful. I think she was specifically coming from a place of talking about how much she cared about the character and wanted to protect the character and felt like certain yeah. choices didn't make sense for the character. Mm-hmm. And and so so I think that like there wasn't intention the intention wasn't to harm but the outcome was what it was. And I think it's to me it most read as like really naive about how the business actually works and that because it's funny yeah. like as a viewer I actually agreed with her point that a lot of the things that made no sense about the show, like having a love triangle, you know, that didn't really make sense to me at all. That didn't really work to me at all. But that is so blatantly an executive requirement. Like that just feels like Mm -hmm. a network requirement for a teen drama, you know? So it's just like, that's not the writers. That's, that's following a mandate, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was like naive and unfortunate and I hope she learns from it because she is only 20. Yeah. I also wonder how much of it is like as a much younger actress in like a much different industry, how siloed she probably is from that process. Because I feel like in older shows, the writing and the acting were much more intertwined. Whereas now I feel Mm -hmm. like especially the way that we do like binges, binge shows where, you know, they Mm -hmm. just put out the whole season or whatever. They, um, they, write so separately from when they like shoot and everything that I I wonder if she just like just is so detached from the process because of the way that television gets made now that she actually doesn't know how that works and I wonder how much of it is like the time of the industry not just how old she is personally but yeah high level everybody don't talk shit about your colleagues um (laughs) like you can you can you can frame being protective of your side of the process without throwing someone else under the bus. And even if Mm -hmm. you really believe that somebody deserves to be thrown under the bus, unless they are being like actively like dangerous or abusive in a way that people need to know and you're being a whistleblower, just keep it yourself. Yeah, I thought Uh, that was just (laughs) not to like beat a dead horse, but that was kind of part of the other side of the argument that I think Karina Adley McKenzie um, made was that like directors could go around talking about how they fixed an actor's performance in post, you know, Mm -hmm. but they don't do that because that's fucked up, you know, well, there are, there are many, we have to, we're all on the same side, right? Like we're, Mm -hmm. we're all trying to make the best possible thing that we can make with the resources and the restrictions that we've been given because at the end of the day when you're making something through a network and working with so much money you're you're Mm -hmm. beholden to the top decision makers in a variety of ways yeah yeah that's it all right well that has been drama alert thanks so much for joining us uh so to wrap up our segment before we hop into micah's um 
Micah's interview, which is really, really cool. He talks about his experience making his very first feature film and how he got there and how he's leveraging the community he built there uh, to continue making cool feature films. Uh, It's time for our Buds segment. Christina, do you have any Buds? Anything you're looking forward to or excited about? Yeah, so this week, um, interestingly... This week has just been full of progress in general. Uh, and finally, I'm gonna knock on wood here. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm. It seems like I am out of the notes stage with my film. And we finally started talking about casting. And that has been exciting. It's been a very exciting first step in that, in that direction. Um, and it seems like pitching will finally start happening for financing. Very exciting. Also, uh, we've both made progress on our feature film that we're writing together. That's right. Yes. We have over 20 pages. You took up the pages. mantle. We do have over <laughs> 20 pages. I think I got us to page 22, um, and I'm, I'm still working on it for this week, but we're, we're almost through Act 1, I think. I think we're, yeah, we're yeah, close we, to the end of Act 1. You started it. You did nine pages, and I did nine pages, and, and I guess we'll continue that pattern or maybe slightly yeah. more. <laughs> It's definitely been weird for me getting back to pro, uh, getting back to screenwriting after having been like so hardcore in the prose world. But speaking of the prose world, my bud is that uh, I got my first rejection from sending out query letters. I've sent out 42 query letters since the last time we talked about this, uh, and I got my first rejection. So people are reading it. That's very exciting. That's uh, great. And the rejection yeah. was from somebody that I, um, I, I, I had a big master spreadsheet that I built of like. Uh, the agents of authors that I thought were similar to me, the agents of authors that I just really like. Um, And then from there, I branched out to just author or uh, agents who represent contemporary romance authors. Even if I didn't recognize the titles, if their bio said that they were looking for something even a little bit like me, I sent them a query. So um, I did the phase one of like people I like stringently researched and, and thought would be good fits and then just people who might be good. And so the person, my the, my first rejection came from the second batch from the like okay. just mass submitting. But I feel really good about my materials. I feel really good about the way that I have structured this process. Uh, and I'm excited to receive more rejections in the upcoming months. <laughs> cool. Yeah. The more rejections you get, the more focused you can be. Exactly. Yeah. Narrowing it down. So yeah, those right. are those are my buds. Um, and speaking of buds, let's turn it over to our bud, Micah. Welcome back to our first time, three-time guest, Micah Khan. Three times? Yeah. <laughs> You're the first one, dude. I love this. It's like being on SNL. I'm in the three-timers club. <laughs> <laughs> I think you were also our first guest officially, weren't you? Really? No. Yeah, no. you were. Yeah, you I was were, your first guest. Mm-hmm, our second were, episode. Micah. Yeah. Oh my god! It's like all of our careers are the same. You get that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Your career is our career. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I love it. We should make jackets. <gasps> oh, three timers <laughs> club, and it just says "booby" on the back. Booby yes. three times. Yeah. Booby three. With like a, a <laughs> stitched like chess piece that says friend of the pod. I think that's oh, nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, welcome back, Micah. Uh, what have you been up to? <laughs> so uh, I, just, <laughs> I just directed my first feature film. Um, it's called The Zombie Wedding. It's uh, in the Weekly World News um, universe. Do you guys know what the Weekly World News is? Mm-mm. No. So... The Weekly World News is like a famous tabloid. 
Um, like they are like really famous for like uh Bat Boy found in a well or some like like they're like the National Enquirer but like the satire version of that, which is kinda mm. odd to say out loud in general, but like they're like super famous for like my mo- my mother was Bigfoot's love slave or um <laughs> or uh what was the Chelsea Clinton is a, is an alien. Uh, or like Hillary Clinton is an alien and Chelsea Clinton is half alien. It's like soup. That's a sure. super famous one because like Hillary Clinton apparently has it framed somewhere. Oh, wow. um, yeah, it's like it's like they're that's super great. weird like tabloid like um, me- like rag I guess is what they used to call them. I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm, um, I, it's not of my generation, but there's a huge fan base for it, mm-hmm. uh, and tons of people love it, uh, which I'm surprised about. Like Spielberg's like a huge fan of the Weekly World News, which is weird. Like apparently he tried to make a TV show out of it a few years ago. Um, huh. So this is their first like cinematic endeavor, like their like uh, first feature film launching their IP studio, which is the Zombie Wedding, which is based on one of their like newer newer like articles. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, wild. <laughs> cool. So cool. how did you get attached to that project? Yeah. So um, it was actually just, like, complete luck. Um, the There was an AD that was circling the project, um, and then the, their original director had dropped out of the project. And, you, you know, he was like, oh, if you're looking for a new director, you should check out this guy's short film. It's kind of exactly the vibe of this movie. And so they watched the short film and they're like, let's hire this guy immediately. And so, like, I went through, like, the interview rounds of meeting all the producers and, like, having to, you know, shake hands and kiss babies, that kind of stuff. Um, and showed them my plan. Like, I read the script, showed them my plan of how I was going to execute everything. I came to them with a pitch deck um, and stuff like that and just showed them, like, this is what I'm looking to do with this movie. And they're like, we like it. Let's Let's do it. And so I, then I came on board and then we shot in October. Um, and then we wrapped in November. Um, it was an 18 day shoot. Uh, mm-hmm. it was insane for an 18 day shoot. Cause it was like, mm-hmm. it was a, um, it's a 21 person ensemble. It's a, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an, I guess it's it is got a, a musical, right? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. well, it's, it, it has musical numbers in it. Uh, okay. but, but not that many, like it's got like one really solid musical number, but like it's very musical based. Um, it's, it's an insane cast too. Like it's just a massive cast. It was, um, and at one point everyone's in the same room. So it's like mm-hmm. blocking that out. Like in the, it was in, like, that was a hard day for all of us, but it was like, it was, it was, it was fun. It was fun. Um, some of the cast in the movie, Seth Gilliam from the walking dead and the wire, uh, Lieutenant Carver from The Wire, uh, plays a zombie preacher, which is funny meta cast that we thought of mm-hmm. um, because he plays a preacher on The Walking Dead. Sherry O'Terry from Saturday Night Live. She's uh, mm-hmm. she's in it. Siobhan Fallon Hogan from Men in Black, Saturday Night Live, and uh, yes. Leeward Pines, uh, who I water. love. I love her. Is she? She's in what? I love the sugar water scene. Yes, sugar water. More. <laughs> More. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're talking cast, though, um, did you play a role in casting? Yes, uh, I, I did play a role in casting. Um, we we went through a casting director named Carolyn Sinclair, but a lot of actors uh, reached out to us because they were big fans of the Weekly World News. Because mm, um, cool. they also have a really cool. famous musical, I didn't realize. I forgot to talk about this. They they have Bat Boy the Musical, which is like a really big like Broadway, like off-Broadway musical that people mm. do still. 
And we had a great like younger ensemble. Donald Chang and Deep D Menon were our stars. Um, they're <laughs> I I swear to you guys, they they are stars. Like they are gonna be movie stars. I don't care what happens. They're gonna there's something's gonna happen. Some the industry's gonna realize it, and they're gonna be like these guys are it. Since you had so many names part of the project, people who who are notable for their credits, were you able to audition and chemistry test people, or was it really just like? offering roles and seeing who says yes so we had zero time for anything let's be honest here it was, it was like yeah when we, did you pitch and come on because you, you shot in october but when were you actually like talking august. originally to come on august, august. Okay, wow august so august is when i officially came on i did all my prep my storyboards my sh- like and all that stuff like right off the bat and then we were we were casting in september uh and then we were shooting in october like we wanted to do chemistry reads but we had Mm -hmm. no time like we were getting closer and closer to the shoot date and i was like let's just get these people cast and just hope that they uh you know talk to each other and like understand each other and like you know one of the things that very early on we were casting our our younger ensemble because i knew that they all had to be like um they, had to, they all had to pretend like they knew each other, right? Like they were all like best friends and one of them, like two of them were getting married in the movie. So it's like uh, very early on, I was like, listen, like I know you guys don't know each other, but just just make an effort to listen to each other. We, we, ne- we never got a chance to do any chemistry reads. I was able to introduce the actors to each other um, maybe like a week before we started shooting and they all luckily did their homework. You know, they all mm. talked to each other. They got to know each other, like the younger ensemble, like... You know, Siobhan, um, who's playing Deep D's mom in the movie. That's another thing. We blind casted the movie. I don't know. I don't know if I got a chance to say that, but like, I was really invested in making sure this movie had a diverse cast. Um, so I, I, I read off the, you know, right from the beginning, I was like, I want to blind cast this movie. Um, so Deep D, who's South Asian, her parents are Kevin Chamberlain and Siobhan Fallon Hogan. Um. Yeah, I know it makes it makes no sense, but it's so funny in the movie. Well, she's like, a, it, presumably, you could just assume she's adopted, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, even though there's one line in the movie that insinuates that maybe it could have been a surrogacy or mm-hmm. something. Okay, sure. Um, something. Regardless, she's their child, and Sherry O'Terry plays Donald Chang's uh <laughs> mother in the movie. So, like, we we really got a great diverse cast in it. And everyone was so game for it. Like Sherry was like, "My son!" Like she she got really into it. She's like, <laughs> she was she was uh she was really excited about having an Asian son. She's she was like showing off to her friends. We're like, "I have an Asian son." <laughs> it was really funny. That's adorable. Um, <laughs> okay, this is your first feature. So like, what are what are the things that like you're expecting going into it, and how did the process? either validate or challenge those initial assumptions everything invalidated me uh wait christina you have a question i just wanted to ask a quick question before you get into that did you have representation before this so i i got a manager a year before this project yeah uh my manager did not get me this job but she uh was really helpful in the negotiation phases of this project um she's great love you candy hope you're listening um she's the best uh and also just so happens she's the one who introduced me to donald chang um because donald is rep by candy and candy sent me a bunch of her clients early on when we, when we first got repped and she's like if i want to work with these guys let me know and then i i watched donald's reel very early on and i was like 
I I felt really weird about it at first. I was like, Candy, could you ask Donald to audition for this movie, please? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, of course. Um, and then he auditioned and everyone loved him. And I was like, perfect. <laughs> My dreams do come true. Um, so what you were saying. Um, so, yeah. So everything invalidated me. Um, it, it's making a feature film is just such a whole different beast. Christina, I'm sure you know. Uh, what it feels like to go from short films to like a feature because like everything and anything will go wrong um <laughs> like you you'll go into a movie like a feature film is like what my my dumb brain was like oh yeah if i can just translate my visual style for my short films into this feature film like this is going to be like the greatest movie ever made right like and then and then reality sets in and you're like and, and you're like running out of time constantly so like yeah. all those cool wonders or like any all those cool like staging and stuff like that you're like all falls by the wayside and you're like get what we can get like shoot whatever <laughs> we can get we must make our days that was the like the only thing that i can think like we lose this location tomorrow we must get everything in throw everything out shoot the coverage get as much get make it as fun as possible and just hope that the performance was good versus like you trying to do all these things like and that being said like i storyboarded a lot of this movie i shot a lot of this movie with like toys to show my dp like like and like this is what this is how people move in the scene and this is how the camera will move and stuff like that um a lot of that like 40 percent of that completely gone completely gone because like one the location fell through and we had to do it in a completely mm. new location and mm. we had to refigure out all the blocking and all all every single thing uh two like the location wasn't like we had never seen the location before and we we're going in there for the first time and everything changes three just like you have no time like like we had 10 hour days you know we can only do 10 hour days makeup takes a long time you know um by mm. the time we were shooting we had four or five hours tops to shoot uh any day and we had tons of scenes to get through so it's like you get what you can and you hope that in the edit the performances do all the work and luckily the the benefit we had was the actors were just carrying the entire movie like they were just so good and they understood the tone of the movie and like and how campy like they i don't know how they did it but they balanced the tone so perfectly like it was supposed to be a campy movie but like it wasn't like overly campy where it's like it was like uh I don't know. I don't have a good example right off the top of my head, but like, but they balanced it. Like it was a grounded campy and it was so perfectly done and each of them just nailed it. And just like, and everyone gave their hundred percent. I don't know any person on set that did not give a hundred percent. So like we had that, we had, we had our crew that was operating at a hundred and then we had our actors operating at a hundred. Cause they were like, this is going to be the greatest movie ever made as well, but they didn't have, they didn't have to deal with all the logistics. So they, you know, <laughs> so stuff like that, like, you know, you have these grand plans, these grand ideas, these grand, like, you know, I'm going to shoot it this way and it's going to be so cool. And people are going to talk about this shot or whatever it is, you know, like you, like I'm a big Spielberg fan and I love how Spielberg gets to shoot everything and kind of like these very short oneers that are like, that has everyone moving around and scenes and stuff like that. Um, I love those shots, but a lot of the reality is that we didn't have time. 18 days is not a lot of time to shoot these. And, you know, Spielberg gets up to like four or five months to shoot his, his movies, you know, then mm -hmm. that's the benefit, right? Like that, like when you have a budget, you either spend it in days or you spend it in like cast or like, 
you know, whatever it is. And they chose, we, we chose cast over days, you know? So, um, all that stuff was a really interesting, like learning curve for me, where it was like that intersection of commerce and, and art, right? Like that, like, okay, great. Like I have these grand ideas, but like, what's the reality of what we can shoot today, you know? Mm-hmm, and, sure. um, and finding that balance. Cause like, you still want to be happy with what you shot. So that being said, like 40% of what I had planned went out the window, but 60% we pretty much got, we nailed, um, you know, and that's because we had a plan. Like I, you know, we had, we had such a solid plan for most of these things that by the time we were shooting, like it's it was, shooting went smoothly and, until shit fell apart, you know, and then we just figure out the problems, you know, we, we troubleshoot, we figure it out. We, you know, uh, we couldn't like, we are supposed to shoot in a taco place. So we couldn't find the taco place didn't let us shoot in there. So we had to go find an abandoned, uh, storefront. We asked the owner, uh, can we shoot in here? And then overnight our production team built a restaurant inside. Like oh, just, just like the, it's like a taco place restaurant. It was it was insane. Or, or sorry, a karaoke bar. Sorry, a karaoke bar they built. Um, it was a it was a, a Herculean effort from that team, um, and stuff like that. Like every like every day, like there would be like, oh, we need to get a we need a motel room to shoot in. Uh, there's no motel room. Okay, let's try to build it. Can't build it. It's too expensive. All right, what can we do? All right, we got this corner of the office. Uh, the production office that we had, right? And in that corner, we're like, for some reason, we're diner booths. And we're like, wh- I was like, all right, I have an idea. Let's build a let's build a corner diner. <laughs> Just like in that little corner, let's build a diner. Like, and like, we'll have a server, we'll have people eating. Um, and then like, I had this like, and anything like, it's literally the shot is this. It's like one move. Because if we shot in any other direction, it's the production office, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and so what we did, what I did was the first image you see is like this menu. Okay, great. Nut Diner, we called it because one of the producers' last name was Nut, right? So like Nuts Diner. <laughs> it, was, it was the first image you see. And then we move past Nuts Diner and we see the, the, the boots. And that's, that's the only way you can shoot is in this direction. And so we just made, we changed the scene to be in a diner. Like that, that was something we had to do the day before because we just could not find a location and then we could not build it. That's interesting because wow. it's like, I don't know if you can talk about the budget or a range, but a lot of the stuff you're describing is like the scrappy, no budget yeah. kind of stuff we, we were used to. But this is supposed to be a step up for you right. as a director to just like wear your director hat and, and have money to work with. But it seems like it, you know, it was still very much that. No, Arena you know, you, you know it. what's funny is like what I what I think I learned on on the on making this movie is that filmmaking's the same everywhere. It's it's just what money gives you is time and resources, right? So like making a movie, like making me cute on dance roll, my short film, was the same effort that we made Zombie Wedding on, but I was doing less work. I was just being able to focus on a handful of things versus having to do everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's still the same amount of work. It's still the same filmmaking. It's still like all the same stuff, except you just have more people to delegate work to. And mm-hmm. that's the that's the interesting thing that I feel like I found. I don't know how else to describe it, but like it didn't feel different. It didn't feel different that making my no budget short film, you know, and then making this big budget like movie 
It, it didn't feel any different. I mean, my brother's a PA and an AD. Um, right now, he's a second second, but he's moving mm. his way up. And he, he works on, like, Hollywood shows here in L.A. Yeah. And, like, the stories he tells me, I'm like, what do you mean major celebrity name did the thing that, like, the guy on my $2 movie did? That's <laughs> exactly. crazy. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone's the same. Everyone's the same. All these productions is just, like, they're all the same in terms of what you're doing, right? Like, you, you're mm-hmm. just trying to get the shot. And... The, diff- the biggest difference is the amount of people you have to help you. And so, like, as no-budget filmmakers, we're so used to wearing multiple hats. And the only way to think about it is that people are just taking the hats off your head and, and, and lightening the weight on your head. And just being like, okay, well, I can take care of this. All right, take that. Take that. Take that. And then you get to just do this and just be Spielberg and focus, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to uh, uh, describe it, I guess. It's literally, like, it's like... It was the same amount of stress. It was the same amount of work. It was the same amount of everything. Um, you know, the thing that I learned specifically is because um, I've never worked with a crew, like a huge crew before, ever. Um, I didn't know what a blocking rehearsal was. I've never done it. I've never done a blocking rehearsal in my life. Um, so, like, working with my AD, like, I learned what blocking rehearsals were. Because, like, when I when I shoot, like, my feature, like, my, my short films, um, when I shoot my short films... I, I just show, I just walk, through, I just like show people what I shot. I'm like this is what you're doing, or I was like, and I go shot by shot, right? Like, I go, I go. All right, we're doing this for this shot. We're doing this for this shot. We're doing this for this shot. I direct the shot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, versus like walking through the entire scene, and then going, this is where the camera is going to be. This is where the camera is going to be, and like figuring that all stuff. Like that's something that was a complete new learning curve for me, and like you know. Uh, actors really being generous especially like the more experienced ones who have been on huge sets were really generous in their like their um their time in like and my in their patience because they had seen my short films are like oh this kid knows what he's doing but like they were very patient with me in learning the the languages of film you know the the okay, we're bringing in for a blocking rehearsal. I was like, all right, what the fuck's a blocking rehearsal? I was like, mm-hmm. I, I, I'll tell you what the shot is. We'll get the shot, you know, like, I, I, and that's maybe that's because I didn't go to film school or anything like that. Or like, maybe I should have read more books. I have no idea. No, like, I had no idea like what it was like to do that. And by the end of it, I got awesome. good at it. <laughs> but, <Yeah>. but <laughs> well, it, I mean, at least it sounds like you had time to do rehearsals uh, in that you had such a like condensed shooting period. That, that was really because my AD was like, he was adamant about like blocking rehearsals. He's like, we need to do them uh, a little aggressively. Um, uh, it's but, such a big ensemble. Yeah, it's such yeah. a big ensemble. It's extra right. important. And and I I really give that to him. Like he like forcing that. Like even like there were days where I'm like I don't fucking need to do that. And I was like and I'm glad he did because he was like no you need to do it you need to understand the entire scene. And I was like all right man whatever. And then I did. I was like you're right. <laughs> you're, you're right. So I have just a question from more of an emotional perspective, I guess. I cried a lot. From... <laughs> yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I cried at least four times. Yes. Yeah, that's, the, that's the question. Yes, I've cried, cried four times on this movie. <laughs> I think, I mean, that's making any feature. Yeah. But um, I meant more from going from sort of like, this is my baby, the way that we treat our films that we're writing and directing and sort of holding from before it exists all the way through post and festivals versus coming onto something that you didn't write and that you only have a certain amount of control over 
and you kind of have to let go of when it becomes its final thing in post. Like, what did that, what was that like for you as a director? I think that for me, um, one of the important things to realize is like, you can come in with all these big ideas and what your version of the movie is, but like, regardless, this has been with somebody else. And before that, somebody else longer than it's been with you. Um, so letting go of that, like, need for control, like, was, because I'm so used to making all the decisions, writing all the scripts, Mm -hmm. doing everything and anything that I had to to get the movie made and seen, like, that was the biggest, it's just letting go. It's like, at some point, it's like, people are going to do what they're going to do with the movie. They're going to, you don't have no control over it. Like, you might have a say here and there, but it's like, your job is just to make the best movie possible and the producer's job is to get the movie seen. And I'm like, all right, and did that. So it's all in their court now. <laughs> cool. You will go crazy thinking about it. Like, you will go for, like, at least two months, you will be like, well, what's going on? What's happening? Um, uh, wh- I need to know what's, like, I'm part of this. And then you're just like, ah, you know what? At this point, like, you just can't spend your energy on it. Like, you got to move on and do other things because it's, like, it's just so out of your control that, like, you're going to be calling for any kind of control, and that's just going to make you a shittier person, I think. Uh, in my opinion. <laughs> Fair enough. Sure. Yeah. So I'd love to go back to the the art and the where art meets commerce kind yeah. of conversation. Because, like, working with a bigger budget and having that understanding and now moving forward to whatever you do next, like, what are things that you can tell us from behind the moneyed curtain, the golden curtain? What's it like with money? How do people talk about money, Micah? Tell us. Well, I think the di- the biggest difference is, and the weirdest thing is in this industry, is that as soon as you make a feature film with like recognizable actors in it, people start to see you just like much more credibly, right? Like, um, I can't say anything like out loud yet, but sure. like, um, <laughs> bef- I-, I don't think it's a problem if I say this, that like I reached out to an agency through a casting director to get an actor attached to my movie and instead of to my next movie um and instead of like it being uh no uh, or or all these questions they just like oh he made this movie it's got like i i this is my assumption um they looked at my movie they saw like they saw who was in it and they're like okay you want to talk to him they they read the script they 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 saw the pitch deck. They're like, okay, you want to talk to the actor? And then I talked to the actor and I was doing my movie. <laughs> it's like, uh-huh. and now it's just negotiating with this agent about like what he gets out of it. And it was like such a weird difference that like, as soon as you make a movie with recognizable actors, like they just see you as a different filmmaker. So now we're in this play box, right? We're in this play box of like um, making a feature film with an actor attached. That's big enough to get a budget. Right. Um, what that budget is, we don't know yet because we're still trying to figure out with sales agents like what the value of this movie should be. And based on that value of that actor, that's the budget we can raise, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like mm-hmm. cr- the idea between, for financiers, you know, in the business of film, because there's there's so many different ways to make movies. Like, you know, all these like, I'm really, je- of course, I'm really jealous of the people who are like, we made this creative effort and it's like the most sincere and sensitive movie on the planet or whatever and they like they raise the money privately and they're able to do 100 percent their vision right uh and with actors that are not not named and maybe and you know and maybe they get to, those actors get some notoriety afterwards for being in the movie but like in the business of film 
it's so much different. Like, and that's something that I'm learning now. It's like, depending on the actor you get, that actor can get you foreign pre-sales. They can get you domestic pre-sales. And with that, you can use that as justification for raising a budget of a movie. And like, if you get the right executive producer attached to the project, the right actor attached to the project, that executive producer can go to a bank and get a loan based on that value. Of the it's movie. like leverage, essentially. Correct. Yeah, leverage. right. But it's like, you know, it's it's done through sales agents who can go and be like, this is the value of that actor here. And this is the value of the actor here. And based on that minimum guarantee, they call it, right, They, um, you can get money for movies. And, and, and really what it comes down to at that point is whether you're going out to financiers, a bank, um, whatever it is, it's just whatever the comfortable number they're okay with giving out for that so then the idea and the way it was explained to me by the the executive producer that i'm working with now is that you use that you use that those parameters to create a box for yourself right that box is your budget and within that box you are as creative as you can be but that's your box like mm-hmm. and that's how all these like <laughs> oh my god i'm gonna get so show for saying this well that's how all these shitty ass films get made like who are just like go straight to red box or whatever because these filmmakers have figured out the market, right? They figured out this is the name you need, this is the genre you need, these are the form pre-sales you need to be able to make this movie, and then they know that regardless, like you might not hear it, you might not hear it out loud that oh, this movie made its money back, but they make their money back. They make their money back in form pre-sales and red box sales, all these, all these things because they have certain actors and they know how those actors will do in certain places. So that's right, been yeah, the, you were telling us. Yeah. Before we were recording that like foreign pre-sales means that like you're selling the rights to distribute your film in foreign countries before the movie is even made. Like before Correct. you just, have a budget, just on like, name. Yeah. That's fascinating. How do you get a, an actor attached before you have a budget? Like before you can promise like I can pay you insert actor name here for sure eventually. Like how does that negotiation happen before there's any money to offer? But yeah, like conversationally is it just like they're like, "Hey, if you can pay me, then I would like to do the movie." So tentatively so, you can use my name. You can throw the weight around a little bit. So truthfully, and this is the part where it gets dicey, is that you make an offer. You, you tell them, I can pay you this much when the movie is going to get made. Uh, and if they're okay with it, they're willing to, you know, and sometimes they'll ask you to put up, like, a fee, right? They'll ask you to put 10% of their fee up or, like, up to 50% of their fee up. Um, mm, like a de- like a safety deposit. Correct, but you don't get that deposit back. That's the thing. Sure, so, that's, like, why, that's a deposit. Right, right, right. The idea is you make an offer to them. You make an offer, be like, this is what I can pay you. Um, and hopefully you have some money backing you before you even start so yeah i don't know i don't know if that answers the question properly (laughs) i think think also in this in this world actors are attached to projects and then drop off all the time like that happens you end up with a rotating list of actors but what while you've got them and while you can use their name you can secure funding right exactly like hopefully swap in someone as equally enticing for sure yeah exactly you can build the movie you know, I, t- I was talking to this uh, bigger producer. Uh, maybe he doesn't want me to say his name. But he's basically saying that. It's like, you know, build your, get a name actor attached. Build that movie. If they drop out, just swap in a new one. You know, you, at least you've now built the movie. Like, you have mm-hmm. the budget. You have everything in place to make that movie. But hopefully this movie gets made with the actor that I got attached. Because I really like him. Because um, he's really nice. And he's mm-hmm. a, and uh, really wants to do it. And also, you know, kudos to his agent. His agent knew he wanted to do it. 
you know, like he knew that he was looking for something like this. And the agent was like, reached out to us, you know, they're like, Hey, can you consider this person? And I was like, yes. Uh, I was like, I was like, I was like, am I dumb? Sure. (laughs) 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 It's literally like how I felt like they were like, Oh, what are like, like they, they reached out to like, we were, we were out to the agency. We were showing them, they were showing them the script and stuff like that. And, you know, I had originally was going out to a different actor and the agent was like, well, that's great if you want to go to him, but I know one of my actors wants to do something like this. Can I introduce you to him? I was like, yeah, I'm not fucking dumb. But how do you not, how do you not, how do you not just be like shocked? Right. Like, cause like in my, my world, I'm just so used to no's. So like when someone's like, Hey, do you want, do you want to talk to this person? I was like, yeah, I fucking want to talk to this person. Why, why would I want to talk to this person? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And just to be clear, this is a script you wrote. It's this is a script I wrote, yes. Yeah, yeah I wrote the script uh, with a friend of mine named Patrick. Uh, we wrote it over the pandemic together. Uh, it's a very contained horror film. To, to kind of take a step back, you made a short film. It was it was Meet Cute that they showed the Yeah, yeah, Meet Cute and Dance World. So you made Meet Cute in 2017, 2018? 2020. 2020. Oh, wow. We okay, made it as long ago as I thought. We made it right before the pandemic hit. We made it in January. Right. January 2020. We made Meet Cute on Dance World. Oh. Right before, right as soon as we finished the, making the film. Like everything was done. Pandemic hit. And we're like, okay. What the fuck? <laughs> I mean, truly incredible timing. So in 2020, right. you make this short film and you, you, you know, do you press everywhere, you, you know, you do do what you can with it. And this movie starts getting made somewhat in your area and uh, a director drops out and an AD remembers. So not in my movie. area, they actually. They're, they're, you know, oh, I'm, really? in ups- I'm in upstate New York. So well, like, area like you're in the Northeast. Northeast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's in the Northeast. Yeah. Fair enough. You're a local filmmaker. They're in Southern <laughs> from Jersey. Vineland. They're in Southern <laughs> Jersey. You're way closer than other places within California, even. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. So I interrupted you. I apologize. <laughs> I'm just trying to kind of put the timeline together for people so that they understand that, like, yes, a lot of this is luck, right place, right time. But also, it's not like you're just some random guy off the street, right? Like, you made this film. It wasn't even your first film. You'd made a bunch of stuff before. Yeah, like, how, just to even go back, how, how many well, films? have you made before this one that sort of opened well, that door. you guys know this but i've made 34 yeah. short films yeah uh, and mm-hmm. the last four are good uh in my opinion <laughs> um so yeah but you i made, had to make the first 30 to correct to get to the point where i knew what the fuck i was doing and what i wanted um yeah me cute on dance roll was the one i mean i know we kind of talked about it very early on in your very in your first podcast mm-hmm. and, and that podcast was about networking laterally and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i still believe in that because um because that's basically what happened here it was like just a yeah, random an AD an recommended AD. you yeah an ad recommended me uh for the job and so um there you go proof is in the pudding people uh <laughs> network laterally um get to make a community and get to know each other um yeah, Meet Cute on Dance Road was really it. it. You know, the fact that so many people had seen it, um, it got a lot of industry attention. Um, ben Stiller tweeted it. Um, David Benioff gave us that crazy pull quote. So a lot of things went right. Uh, during the pandemic, Movie Maker Magazine ended up seeing it, and then they featured it on their website. Um, and then after that, I had made 
some video essays. Movie Maker really liked those video essays, and they're like, you want to come interview filmmakers for us? And then I ended up, like, interviewing huge filmmakers for the magazine. Uh, my first interview with them being with Spike Lee. Um, and that Spike Lee interview also kind of launched me into more circles that I didn't really expect to be in. Um, and so the Spike Lee interview was actually the thing that really nailed the... Uh, the job because they they all they listen to the spike lee interview and they're like that's the type of filmmaker we want to work with um and so mm -hmm. that really helped too so like having a bunch of content out there that people could not only just see my work but they can see me and they can see what i'm passionate about i think really helped like this yeah yeah exactly <laughs> I, and i i think that it can sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees but like the trees are what make the forest and right. if you are genuinely invested in the thing that you're doing then like you know if, if it matters that much to you stay the course and it sounds like eventually this sort of thing will have to happen you know and right I, yeah I think that's a really positive way of looking at all of this at some point your work catches up with luck right like mm -hmm. it, I, we don't know when it's gonna be but there's things you can do there's things you can do. You can, like, honestly be annoying on social media. Like, post your fucking move. Like, post your shit. Like, that's... Uh, who cares if people get annoyed with you because you're, you're spamming? Like, it's your life. Like, it's the thing you do. Just post it. You, and you might get new eyes on it each time. You don't know. Like, this... You gotta... People have to be vocal about their work. Like, you gotta, like... You can be humble wherever you want. You can be, like, humble in your filmmaking and your craft and stuff like that. But when it comes to promoting your movies, you cannot be humble. You cannot. There, there's just no room for it. Especially if you're, like, not a rich kid. Like, you're not, like, you're not somebody who can just wait around and, like, hopefully your parents can pay your bills for you. Like, you have to just be annoying as shit. You have to be loud. Like, there's no room for being quiet. You know, I think of this quote, a shitty, it's a shitty quote. But... A, f a filmmaker friend of mine, a South Asian filmmaker, uh, was talking to another South Asian filmmaker writer. He's a writer. He's like he runs a he runs a big like uh, screenwriting group on on the internet. Sounds like you're setting up a joke. So oh, a South Asian filmmaker talks to another South Asian filmmaker. Like, oh, but it's a bad a one. But like, oh it's no, a, it's, it's a bad one. But what he told her, like, she was being very vocal about like the lack of diversity in the film industry, and he messaged her, and he was like, um, "You can't be that vocal, like." quiet like quiet girls get work oh god and i i think Jesus. about that all the time i think about that quote all the time because i'm like this guy is also from the south asian community like we should be amplifying there's there's and what i told her is like you have an obligation to never be quiet again like you mm -hmm. like you cannot like this is what they want they don't want you to be out there promoting the shit out of your stuff they don't want you to get seen they want them to get seen you know what I mean? People want them to get seen. The people making fun of you for not sharing your shit are the people who want to be seen more than you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So but they're they're choosing a different method, and right. they see your method as threatening theirs. Exactly. And so, so if you're a person of color, you're a person from not a lot of means in this industry. Just you cannot. You you they 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 tell you all the time in this industry you have to be humble. You have to be humble, and that, that shit's bullshit. Like it's just people. It's just another way of them trying to control, like who they allow through the pipeline you, you there's no room for being humble about promoting your work you can be humble about your craft you can be humble about your work all that shit but when it comes to like this is my short film watch it don't be shy like if you see filmmakers that you admire ask them to watch it you know i'm tired of people being like oh you can't do this you can't do that you can't ask people to do this i'm like just ask 
What's the worst that happens? They they either say no, and then you're right back to where you started. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or they say yes, and then maybe they're like, hey, stay in touch. Maybe And maybe 10 years from now, they're like, hey, I can help you now. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I also think that, like, you know, you were you were talking about, like, the Debbie Benioff quote um, yeah. and the Ben Stiller tweet. Like, those didn't happen accidentally. You went out and got those. Correct. You went out and talked to people. Yeah, yeah. And I, were annoying I, I tur- about your movie. I turned the bell icon <laughs> on on Ben Stiller's tweets. <laughs> Every time he tweeted, I would tweet at him. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, hey, you know, don't hate the hustle if you it, yeah. uh, if you see the results. Yeah, like, it worked. You know, you got to you, you got to take chances. I mean, all the the way I see it with the people who are higher above you, like they you really only get one shot to ask them to do something big for you. And then that's really it. And then you better be ready for what that thing is. OK, well, let's let's start to, to wrap this up by talking about the future and about hopefully your first debut writer and director feature. Yeah. What can you tell us so far? I, we've talked about it a little bit, but like what can you tell us about it? And what advice would you give to other uh, feature dr- writer directors who are hoping to get their their movie made with like an actual budget and not just the, you know, pennies from friends? Yeah, my next feature film is going to be a horror feature that I I wrote with my friend Patrick, which is a a cosmic horror basically. It's um about a person who whose father after his father dies, he inherits his father's house and in that house he finds a rug and in that rug there's an alternate dimension. And in that alternate dimension there's a child, so it's all about them kind of unraveling this mystery of who this baby is and also every time he goes down to the rug he goes crazier and crazier the the thing Mm. takes over his mind more and more what i hope that people who are writer directors take it's hard to break in this industry and for the most part it's luck right um but to become a working filmmaker there are things that you might hate you might let's be honest you're you're gonna hate a lot of this advice um because maybe you want to be doing like these intimate dramas you want to be doing these uh comedies with whoever you want to work with but the quicker you can start to understand the business of film the more sustainable your career will be um whether that means you're in the micro budget horror film world uh you're making like your sixty thousand dollar horror films and figuring out where and who can buy those uh where they can play you know stuff like that or you're making um they're not they're they're calling them urban noirs now it's like real it's like the new era of black exploitation but like there's an actual conversation happening in hollywood about it now um i don't know if you guys have seen like the um the urban noirs on tubi which are like like really low budget black filmmakers making these like movies that have the same like there there's like weird tropes in them like there's gotta always gotta be a love triangle it's gotta be like a drug deal gone wrong or a money heist or something like it's it's a it's a true fascinating phenomenon that's happening on like tubi but these filmmakers who are making them they're getting views and they're making tons of money making these like very micro budget uh feature films and now people are trying to get into those like and funding those people and like to get a little bit of that money, which is crazy. But like, they like, I don't think those people really understand that they're creating an industry right now and they don't even know it. Uh, and I hope they figure it out. If you're listening to this, Oh my God, guys, if you're making those movies, you're in an industry and they're in a, you're in the conversation right now. But <laughs> the quicker you can understand what your niche is. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to be, um, put in that box forever. Uh, because what it, as a writer director, 
you can always write your way out of the box. Um, there are there are so many examples of people who can who write in different genres, and as long as you can write well in those genres, you will do fine. That being said, those big genres that gets that get movies made that can be your step in step into the door are horror and action. <laughs> if you can write good horror or you and like producible horror or really good action movies that Gerard Butler can star in, like you will get your foot in the door. You will mm-hmm. you, like these are movies that are being produced constantly because they make money. Horrors I think of, like yeah. sorry to cut you off. No, no. I hear that and and you're right, you are right, but it's yeah. one of those frustrating things to hear someone who genuinely loves horror movies and has always wanted to make horror For movies sure. when like a white bro who doesn't who looks down at horror movies is like I'm going to come in and make a thing and get my foot in the door and then like women of color are being told no. Yeah. And they're genuinely trying to say stuff with their with mm-hmm. their genre work, you know. And so it's that it's that's just like a frustrating thing because you're the, not wrong. The, but but this is what I was saying earlier is like that model that that box that that people these people have learned that business model of how to make those movies and make those shitty ass movies that break them into the industry. Like we need to learn that because they're gatekeeping that information. And the quicker you can learn it, and here's how you can learn it. And no one wants to do it. Just go to AFM. Go to go to American Film Market and meet the buyers directly. Meet the financiers directly. Like don't don't build those connections yourself and figure out how to use those connections. Like because foreign buyers come to AFM. Meet those buyers and figure out what it means to pre-sell movies for yourself. You know what I mean? And these are things that I'm still learning. So like I'm making mistakes. I'm learning. I'm figuring it out. But these are the steps to start to control your own your own business, your own career. So, Christina, what you're saying, like, is a valid concern. You and I have known each other for a long time now. Um, mm-hmm. And we've both been trying to break into this industry, you know. But, like, we like we need to take the reins away from people who are using the, that, the means to create shitty work and hopefully use that, that box, like I was saying, to do what we need to do and make it good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, learning learning the industry and it's so again and, and Christina, I said it, it's gonna suck to hear, um, and it does. It's it's a shitty thing to hear because the quicker you can understand that like these horror the horror genre and the action genre are the way these people are breaking into the industry and getting work, we need to start building the house for that. Like as people of color, as people without means, with and trying to find a way into the industry it's like we need to find a way to build our own houses so yeah i don't know uh understanding the industry as the business side of this industry as quickly as possible and the other thing would be is this industry is so built on relationships in terms of like getting an actor attached right like that's the big thing that's what everyone in this industry hears right there's a couple things you can do to help you right it's one, maybe tweet at them. Tweet your movie at them. <laughs> That's literally, it's worked for me in the past. Um, turn the bell icon on. Even on Elon Musk's Twitter? <laughs> I, I Actually, you know, it's funny. I deleted Twitter, so I have no idea what Twitter is. <laughs> like. You're like, Christina and I do not know what to do about Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, 
I, I deleted it. You know, I um, obviously after the whole like everyone come in Hollywood punching down at me for saying stop telling people to go shoot it on an iPhone. I deleted my Twitter because oh, I was yeah. like, I don't need this. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm actually doing the work and I'm not just sitting on Twitter tweeting the whole time. Uh, so I deleted Twitter. Um, and then I thought about coming back to it. So I started a new Twitter and then Elon Musk had bought it and I deleted it again. I was like, nah, fuck this. Um, <laughs> But, like, Twitter's a good networking tool. Instagram's a good networking tool. Like, reach out to people, you know. Send them, you know. Don't be annoying about it, like, in in the sense that be like, I need you to watch this. I need you to be my movie. Be like, it's building a relationship. It's getting your movie out there. Send it to them. You know, hopefully they watch it and they don't. You know, go to film festivals. Try to meet them. Talk to them, you know. Um, And also, building relationships with sales agents so you understand who are the actors that could raise a budget. And what is that budget? Like, if you can raise, if you find an actor who's worth one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, um, you can raise one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Now, what does that look like, right? Like, that's, are you how much are you paying them? How much are you raising on your own? Like, you know, minimum guarantees. Like, there's a friend of mine uh, who makes horror films, right? He makes one hundred thousand dollar horror films. Um, he's got a minimum guarantee of making those horror films. Every time he goes to the distribution company, they give him thirty k out of the or no, yeah, they give him thirty k as a minimum guarantee just just on genre alone to make this movie and he doesn't have any name actors so but then he has to go out and raise the rest so 40 70k he has to go raise but that's not a hard ask when you're working within the model you know your box is in right i'm still learning that's the thing is like i don't know if i have all the answers yet but as i you know as i come into the fourth time on the show i hope i have more answers for you guys like <laughs> you know i and i'm hoping that like i can help further explain this more to more filmmakers as as we keep going I don't, um and uh yeah. o- we need more r- people who climb the ladders and don't like shut the trap door on their way right yeah right i think right. a lot of people do that right um i don't know if that answers your question but like again like anyone who's listening to this like the fourth time i come onto the show I hope I have more answers for you. Seriously, I hope I have. I'm just learning all this. This is like a month or two ago where I started really like learning as much as I could from these financiers, from these sales agents, from like, and but it's only because now I'm getting access to them. Mm-hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because I made this movie, I'm now getting access to people that I otherwise would not be getting access to. And I'm hoping that I can use that as a way to do more and hopefully build a bridge, yeah. you know, find more, work with more filmmakers. And, and, you know, my my future goal, you know, I was just talking about this today with a couple of friends. I was like, I want to start a production company where I can just start producing other people's work and and work within this. If I can figure this financial model out and figure out a, a decent enough stream of like how to make these movies and who's bankable and who's this and all this stuff and do it myself, I want to use that as a way to produce other filmmakers' work that I like, you know, and hopefully get them into the game. Well, I, I love that goal. Yeah. Uh, we love yeah. you. We can't wait to give you your fourth time badge in a fourth year. Fourth time. Yes. Fourth time on our, our, <laughs> our cool track jackets or whatever the hell we're getting. Um, thank you so much, Micah, <laughs> yeah, for, thank for coming you. back. No problem. Love you guys. Yeah. Love all of you love listening. You. Love you. Reach out to me if you guys have questions. Um, uh, but not on Twitter. Not on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Instagram. And I'm on Facebook. So feel free if anyone has any questions. If I can answer it, I will. If I can, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them are in our episode description. And thank you to our Booby VIPs who are our $10 supporters on Patreon, patreon.com slash breakingoutpod if you want a shout out at the end of every episode, just like our great friends Brandy Nicole Payne, Kelsey Rauber, and Norman Steinberg.